Section 7 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 1, From the Beginning until the Death of Alexander I, 1825, by Shimon Dubunov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. Chapter 4, The Inner Life of Polish Jewry and its Genius. Part 1. 1. Kahal Autonomy and the Jewish Diet The peculiar position occupied by the Jews in Poland made their social autonomy both necessary and possible. Constituting an historical nationality with an inner life of its own, the Jews were segregated by the government as a separate estate, an independent social body. Though forming an integral part of the urban population, the Jews were not officially included in any one of the general urban estates whose affairs were administered by the magistracy or the trade unions. Nor were they subjected to the jurisdiction of Christian law courts as far as their internal affairs were concerned. They formed an entirely independent class of citizens and as such were in need of independent agencies of self-government and jurisdiction. The Jewish community constituted not only a national and cultural, but also a civil entity. It formed a Jewish city within a Christian city, with its separate forms of life, its own religious, administrative, judicial, and charitable institutions. The government of a country with the sharply divided estates could not but legalize the autonomy of the Jewish Kahal after having legalized the Magdeburg law of the Christian urban estates in which the Germans constituted the predominating elements. As for the kings, in their capacity as the official guardians of the Jews, they were especially concerned in having the Kahals properly organized since the regular payment of Jewish taxes was thereby assured. Moreover, the government found it more to its convenience to deal with the well-defined body of representatives than with the unorganized masses. As early as the period of royal paternalism during the reign of Sigismund I, the king endeavored to extend his fatherly protection to the Jewish system of communal self-government. The appointment of Michael Yosefovich as the senior of the Lithuanian Jews with the rabbi as expert advisor, was designed to safeguard the interest of the exchequer by concentrating the power in the hands of a federation of cars in Lithuania. On more than one occasion, Sigismund I confirmed the spiritual judges or rabbis, judices spiritualis doctores legis, elected by the Jews in different parts of Poland in their office. In 1518, he ratified, at the request of the Jews of Posen, the election of two leading rabbis, Moses and Mendel, to the posts of provincial judges for all the communities of Great Poland, bestowing upon the newly elected officials the right of instructing and judging their co-religionists in accordance with the Jewish law. In Krakow, where the Jews were divided into two separate communities, one of native Polish Jews and another of immigrants of Bohemia, 
the king empowered each of them to elect its own rabbi. The choice fell upon Rabbi Asher for the former and upon Rabbi Peretz for the latter community, and when a dispute arose between the two communities as to the ownership of the old synagogue, the king again intervened and decided the case in favor of the native community, 1519. In 1531, Mendel Frank, the rabbi of Brest, complained to the king that the Jews did not always respect his decisions and brought their cases before the royal starostas. Accordingly, Sigismund I thought it necessary to warn the Jews to submit to the jurisdiction of their own doctors or rabbis who dispensed justice according to the Jewish law and were given the rights of imposing the oath, harem, excommunication, and all kinds of other penalties upon insubordinates. In the following year, the king appointed as a senior or chief rabbi of Krakow the well-known scholar Moses Fischel, who, it may be added parenthetically, had taken the degree of doctor of medicine in Pedra to succeed Rabbi Asher, referred to previously. Pursuing the same policy of centralization, the king, a few years later, in 1541, confirmed in the office as chief rabbis Signores of the whole province of Little Poland, two men learned in the Jewish law, the same Rabbi Moses Fischer of Krakow, and the famous progenitor of Polish Talmudism, Rabbi Shalom Shakna of Lublin. In the same measure, however, in which the communal organization of the Jews gained in strength, and the functions of the rabbis and kahal elders became more clearly defined, the government gradually receded from its attitude of paternal interference. The Magna Carta of Jewish autonomy may be said to be represented by the Charter of Sigismund Augustus, issued on August 13, 1551, which embodies the fundamental principles of self-government for the Jewish communities of Great Poland. According to this charter, the Jews are entitled to elect, by general agreement, their own rabbis and lawful judges to take charge of their spiritual and social affairs. The rabbis and judges elected in this manner are authorized to expound all questions of the religious ritual, to perform marriages and grant divorces, to execute the transfer of property and other acts of a civil character, and to settle disputes between Jews in accordance with the Mosaic law. Iuxta ritum et morem legis illorum mosaicae, and the supplementary Jewish legislation. In conjunction with the Kahal elders, they are empowered to subject offenders against the law to excommunication and other punishments such as Jewish custom may prescribe. In case the person punished in this manner does not recant within a month, the matter is to be brought to the knowledge of the king who may sentence the incorrigible malefactor to death and confiscate his property. The local officers of the king are enjoined to lend their assistance in carrying out the orders of the rabbis and elders. This enactment, coupled with a number of similar charters, which were subsequently promulgated for various provinces of Poland, 
conferred upon the elective representatives of the Jewish communities extensive autonomy in economic and administrative, as well as judicial affairs, at the same time ensuring its practical realization by placing at its disposal the power of the royal administration. The firm consolidation of the regime of self-governing community, the Kahal, dates from that period. In this appellation, two concepts were merged, the community, the aggregate of the local Jews on the one hand, and on the other, the communal administration, representing the totality of all Jewish institutions of a given locality, including the rabbinates. The activity of the Kahals assumed particularly large proportions beginning with the latter half of the 16th century. All cities and towns with a Jewish population had their separate Kahal board. Their size corresponds roughly to that of the given community. In large centers, the membership of the Kahal board amounted to 40. In smaller towns, it was limited to 10. The members of the Kahal were elected annually during the intermediate days of Passover. As a rule, the election proceeded according to a double-graded system. Several electors, Bororim, their number varying from 9 to 5, were appointed by lot from among the members of all synagogues, and these electors, after taking a solemn oath, chose the Kahal elders. The elders were divided into groups. Two of these, the Rashim and Tubim, the heads and optimates, stood at the head of the administration and were in charge of the general affairs of the community. They were followed by the Dayanim, or judges, and the Gabaim, or directors, who managed the synagogues as well as the educational and charitable institutions. The Rashim and Tubim formed the nucleus of the Kahal, seven of them making a quorum. In the smaller communities, they were practically identical with the Kahal board. The sphere of the Kahal's activity was very large. Within the area allotted to it, the Kahal collected and turned over to the exchequer, the state taxes, arranged the assessment of imposts, both of a general and a special character, took charge of the synagogues, the Talmudic academies, the cemeteries, and other communal institutions. The Kahal executed title deeds on real estate, regulated the instruction of the young, organized the affairs appertaining to charity and to commerce and handicrafts, and with the help of the Dayanim and the rabbi, settled dispute between the members of the community. As for the rabbi, while exercising unrestricted authority in religious affairs, he was in all else dependent on the Kahal board, which invited him to his post for a definite term. Only great authorities, far famed on account of their Talmudic erudition, were able to assert their influence in all departments of communal life. The Kahal of each city extended its authority to the adjacent settlements and villages, which did not possess autonomous organizations of their own. Moreover, the Kahals of the large centers kept under their jurisdiction the minor Kahals, or Prikahalki, as they were officially called, of the towns and townlets of their district, as far as the apportionment of taxes and the judicial authority were concerned.
This gave rise to the Kahal boroughs or Galiloth, singular Galil. Often disputes arose between the Kahal boroughs as to the boundaries of their districts, the contested minor communities submitting now to this, now to the other belligerent. On the whole, however, the moderate centralization of self-government benefited the Jewish population, since it introduced order and discipline into the Kahal hierarchy and enabled it to defend the civil and national interests of Judaism more effectively. The capstone of this Kahal organization were the so-called Wads, the conferences or assemblies of rabbis and Kahal leaders. These conferences received their original impetus from the rabbis and judges. The rabbinical law courts, officially endowed with extensive powers, were guided in their decisions by the legislation embodied in the Bible and the Talmud, which made full provision for all questions of religious, civil, and domestic life, as well as for all possible infractions of the law. Yet it was but natural that even in this extensive system of law, disputed points should arise for which the competency of a single rabbi did not suffice. Moreover, there were cases in which the litigants appealed from the decision of one rabbinical court to another more authoritative court. Finally, lawsuits would occasionally arise between groups of the population, between one community and another, or between a private person and the Kahal board. For such emergencies, conferences of rabbis and elders would be called from time to time as the highest court of appeal. Beginning with the middle of the 16th century, these conferences met at the time of the great fairs when large numbers of people congregated from various places and litigants arrived in connection with their business affairs. The chief meeting place was the Lublin Fair, owing to the fact that Lublin was the residence of the father of Polish rabbinism, the above-mentioned Rabbi Shalom Shakna, who was officially recognized as the senior rabbi of Little Poland. As far back as in the reign of Sigismund I, the Jewish doctors or rabbis met there for the purpose of settling civil dispute according to their law. In the latter part of the 16th century, these conferences of rabbis and communal leaders assembling in connection with the Lublin fairs became more frequent and led in a short time to the organization of regular periodic conventions which were attended by representatives from the principal Jewish communities of the whole of Poland. The activities of these conferences or conventions passed by gradual expansion from the judicial sphere into that of administration and legislation. At these conventions, laws were adopted determining the order of Kahal elections, fixing the competencies of the rabbis and judges, granting permits for publishing books, and so forth. Occasionally, these assemblies of Jewish notables endorsed by the authority the enactment of the Polish governments. Thus, in 1580, the representatives of the Polish Jewish communities who assembled in Lublin gave their solemn sanction to the well-known Polish law barring the Jews of the crown or Poland proper from farming state taxes and other public revenues in view of the fact 
that certain people thirsting for gain and wealth to be obtained from extensive leases might thereby expose the community to great danger. Towards the end of the 16th century, the fair conferences received a former organization. They were attended by the rabbis and Kahal representatives of the following provinces. Great Poland, the leading community being that of Posen, Little Poland, Krakow and Lublin, Red Russia, Lemberg, Volhynia, Ostrog and Kremenets, and Lithuania, Brest and Grodno. Originally, the name of the assembly varied with the number of provinces represented in it, and it was designated as the Council of the Three, or the Four, or the Five Lands. Subsequently, when Lithuania withdrew from the Polish Kahal organization, establishing a federation of its own, and the four provinces of the crown began to send their delegates regularly to these conferences, the name of the assembly was ultimately fixed as the Council of the Four Lands, Wat Arba Aratzot. The council was made up of several leading rabbis of Poland and of one delegate for each of the principal kahals selected from among their elders, the number of the conferences altogether amounting to about 30. They met periodically once or twice a year in Lublin and Yaroslav, Galicia alternately. As a rule, the council assembled in Lublin in early spring between Purim and Passover and in Yaroslav at the end of the summer before the high holidays. The representatives of the four lands, says a well-known analyst of the first half of the 17th century, reminded one of the Sanhedrin, which in ancient days assembled in the chamber of hewn stones, Lishkat Hakasit of the Temple. They dispensed justice to all the Jews of the Polish realm, issued preventive measures and obligatory enactments, takanoth, and imposed penalties as they saw fit. All the difficult cases were brought before their court. To facilitate matters, the delegates of four lands appointed a special commission of so-called provincial judges, Diane Medinoth, to settle dispute concerning property, while they themselves, in plenary session, examined criminal cases, matters pertaining to hasaka, priority of possession, and other difficult points of law. The Council of the Four Lands was the guardian of Jewish civil interests in Poland. It sends its shtatlans to the residential city of Warsaw and other meeting places of the Polish diets for the purpose of securing from the king and his dignitaries the ratification of the ancient Jewish privileges which had been violated by the local authorities or of forestalling contemplated restrictive laws and increased fiscal burdens for the Jewish population. But the main energy of the world was directed towards the regulations of the inner life of the Jews. The statute of 1607, framed at the instance of the world by Joshua Falk Cohen, rabbi of Lublin, is typical of this solicitude. The following rules are prescribed for the purpose of fostering piety and commercial integrity among the Jewish people to pay special attention to the observance of the dietary laws, 
to refrain from adopting the Christian form of dress, not to drink wine with the Christians in the pothouses, in order not to be classed among the disreputable members of the community, to watch over the chastity of Jewish women, particularly in the villages where the Jewish arrenders with their families were isolated in the midst of the Christian population. In the same statute, rules are also laid down tending to restrain the activities of Jewish users and to regulate money credit in general. In 1623, the Kahals of Lithuania withdrew from the Federation of the Four Lands and established a provincial organization of their own, which was centralized in the Convention of Delegates from the three principal Kahals of Brest, Grodno, and Pinsk. Subsequently, in 1652 and 1691, the Kahals of Vilna and Slutsk was added. The Lithuanian Assembly was generally designated as the Council of the Principal Communities of the Province of Lithuania, what Kehilot Rashiot di Medinat Lita. The organic statute framed by the First Council comprised many aspects of the social and spiritual life of the Jews. It lays down rules concerning the mutual relationship of the communities, the methods of apportioning the taxes among them, the relations with the outside world, such as the Polish diets, the local authorities, the landed nobility, and the urban estates, the elections of the Kahals, and the question of popular education. The Lithuanian Wad met every three years in various cities of Lithuania, but in cases of emergency, extraordinary conventions were called. During the first years of its existence, the Lithuanian Council was evidently subordinate to that of Poland, but at a later date, this dependence ceased. In this way, both the Crown, or Poland proper, and Lithuania had their communal federations with central administrative agencies. As was pointed out previously, the Polish Federation was composed of four provinces. The individual Kahals, which were the component parts of each of these four provinces, held their own provincial assemblies, which stood in the same relation to the Wat as the Diatines or provincial diets of Poland to the national diets of the whole country. Thus, the communities of Great Poland had their own Great Polish Diatines, those of Volhynia their own Volhynian Diatine, and so forth. The provincial Kahal conventions met for the purpose of allotting the taxes to the individual communities of a given province in proportion to the size of its population or of electing delegates to the federated council. These Jewish diatines acted as the intermediate agencies of self-government, standing halfway between the individual Kahals on the one hand and the general wards of the Crown and of Lithuania on the other. This firmly neat organization of communal self-government could not but foster among the Jews of Poland a spirit of discipline and obedience to the law. It had an educational effect on the Jewish populace, which was left by the government to itself and had no share in the common life of the country. It provided the stateless nation 
with a substitute for national and political self-expression, keeping public spirit and civic virtue alive in it, and upholding and unfolding its genuine culture. 2. The Instruction of the Young One of the mainstays of this genuine culture was the autonomous school. The instruction of the rising generation was the object of constant solicitude on the part of the kahals and the rabbis as well as the conventions and councils. Elementary and secondary education was centered in the headers, while higher education was fostered in the yeshivas. Attendance at the header was compulsory for all children of school age, approximately from 6 to 13. The subjects of the instruction at these schools were the Bible in the original, accompanied by a translation into the Judeo-German vernacular, and the easier treatises of the Talmud with commentaries. In some headers, the study of Hebrew grammar and the four fundamental operations of arithmetic were also admitted into the curriculum. The establishment of these headers was left to private initiative. Every melamed or Jewish elementary teacher being allowed to open a header for boys and to receive compensation for his labors from their parents. Only the headers for poor children or for orphans, the so-called Talmud Torahs, were maintained by the community from public funds. Yet, the supervision of the kahal extended not only to the public, but also to the private elementary schools. The kahal prescribed the curriculum of the headers, arranged examination for the scholars, fixed the remuneration of the teachers, determined the hours of instruction, which were generally from 8 to 12 a day, and took charge of the whole schoolwork, in some places even appointing a sort of school board, Hevra Talmud Torah, from among its own members. The higher Talmudic school or college, the Yeshba, was entirely under the care of the Kahars and the rabbis. This school, which provided a complete religious and jurisdictional education based on the Talmud and the rabbinical codes of law, received the sanction of the Polish government. King Sigismund Augustus granted the Jewish community of Lublin permission to open a yeshiva or a gymnasium, gymnasium ad instituendos omines illorium religionis, with a synagogue attached to it, bestowing upon its president, a learned rabbi, not only the title of rector, but also extensive powers over the affairs of the community. 1567. Four years later, the same king granted an even larger license to the learned Solomon of Lemberg, whom the Jewish community of Lemberg and whole land of Russia have chosen for their senior doctor, Abbeddin or Rosh Yeshba, conferring upon him the right to open schools in various cities to train the students in the sciences, to keep them under his control and to inure them to a strict discipline. In the course of time, Talmudic yeshivas sprang up in all cities of Poland and Lithuania. The functions of rector or rosh yeshiva were performed either by the local rabbi or by a man especially selected for this post on account of his learning. 
It seems that the combination of the two offices of rabbi and college president in one person was limited to those communities in which the duties of the spiritual guide of the community were not complex and admitted of the simultaneous discharge of pedagogic functions. In the large centers, however, where the public responsibilities were regularly divided, the Rosh Yeshba was an independent dignitary who was clothed with considerable authority. Similar to the contemporary rectors of Jesuit colleges, the Rosh Yeshiba was absolute master within the school walls. He exercised unrestricted control over his pupils, subjecting them to a well-established discipline and dispensing justice among them. The contemporary chronicler quoted above, Rabbi Nathan Hanover of Zaslav in Bolinia, portrays in vivid colors the Jewish school life of Poland and Lithuania in the first half of the 17th century. In no country, quote Rabbi Nathan, was the study of the Torah so widespread among the Jews as in the kingdom of Poland. Every Jewish community maintained the yeshiva, paying its president a large salary so as to enable him to conduct the institution without worry and to devote himself entirely to the pursuit of learning. Moreover, every Jewish community supported college students, bahurs, giving them a certain amount of money per week so that they might study under the direction of the president. Every one of these bahurs was made to instruct at least two boys for the purpose of deepening his own studies and gaining some experience in Talmudic discussions. The poor boys obtained their food either from the charity fund or from the public kitchen. A community of 50 Jewish families would support no less than 30 of these young men and boys, one family supplying board for one college student and his two pupils, the former sitting at the family table like one of the sons. There was scarcely a house in the whole kingdom of Poland where the Torah was not studied and where either the head of the family or his son or his son-in-law or the yeshiva students boarding with him was not an expert in Jewish learning. Frequently, all of this could be found under one roof. For this reason, every community contained a large number of scholars, a community of 50 families having as many as 20 learned men who were styled Morenu or Haber. They were all excelled by the Rosh Yeshba, all the scholars submitting to his authority and studying under him at the Yeshba. The program of study in Poland was as follows. The scholastic term during which the young men and the boys were obliged to study under the Rosh Yeshba lasted from the beginning of the month of Iyar until the middle of Ab, approximately from April until July, in the summer, and from the first of the months of Heshvan until the 15th of Shabbat, October-June, in the winter. Outside of these terms, the young men and the boys were free to choose their own place of study. From the beginning of the summer term until Shabbos, and from the beginning of the winter term until Hanukkah, all the students of the yeshiva studied with great intensity the Gemara, 
the Babylonian Talmud and the commentaries of Rashi and the Tosafists. The scholars and young students of the community, as well as all interested in the study of the law, assembled daily at the yeshiva, where the president alone occupied the chair, while the scholars and college students stood around him. Before the appearance of the Rosh Yeshba, they would discuss questions of Jewish law, and when he arrived, everyone laid his difficulties before him and received an explanation. Thereupon, silence was restored, and the Rosh Yeshba delivered his lecture, presenting the new results of his study. At the conclusion of the lecture, he arranged a scientific argumentation, Hiluk, proceeding in the following way. Various contradictions in the Talmud and the commentaries were pointed out and solutions were proposed. These solutions were in turn shown to be contradictory and other solutions were offered, this process being continued until the subject of discussion was completely illustrated. These exercises continued in summer at least until midday. From the middle of the two scholastic terms until their conclusion, the Rosh Yeshba paid less attention to these argumentations and read, instead, the religious cause, studying with the mature scholars, the Turim, with commentaries, and with the younger students, the Compendium of Alfasi. Several weeks before the close of the term, the Rosh Yeshba would honor the members of his college, both the scholars and the students, by inviting them to conduct the scientific disputations on his behalf, though he himself would participate in the discussion in order to exercise the mental faculties of all those attending the yeshiva. Attached to the president of the yeshiva was an inspector who had the duty of visiting the elementary schools or headers daily and seeing to it that all boys whether poor or rich, applied themselves to study and did not loiter in the streets. On Thursdays, the pupils had to present themselves before the trustee, Gabai, of the Talmud Torah, who examined them in what they have covered during the week. The boy, who knew nothing or who did not answer adequately, was, by order of the trustee, turned over to the inspector, who subjected him in the presence of his fellow pupils to severe physical punishment and other painful degradations that he might firmly resolve to improve his studies during the following week. On Fridays, the head of pupils presented themselves in a body before the Rosh Yeshva himself to undergo a similar examination. This had a strong deterrent effect upon the boys and they devoted themselves energetically to their studies. The scholars, seeing this, the honors showered upon the Rosh Yeshva, coveted the same distinction, that of becoming a Rosh Yeshva in some community. They studied assiduously in consequence. Prompted originally by self-interest, they gradually came to devote themselves to the Torah from pure unselfish motives. By way of contrast to this panegyric upon Polish-Jewish school life, it is only fair that we should quote another contemporary who severely criticizes the method of instruction then in vogue at the yeshivas. 
The whole instruction at the yeshiva, writes the well-known preacher Solomon Ephraim of Lenchitsa, died 1619, reduces itself to mental equilibristics and empty argumentations called hiluk. It is dreadful to contemplate that some venerable rabbi presiding over a yeshiva in his anxiety to discover and communicate to others some new interpretation should offer a perverted explanation of the Talmud, though he himself and everyone else be fully aware that the true meaning is different. Can it be God's will that we sharpen our minds by fallacies and sophistries, spending our time in vain and teaching the listeners to do likewise? And all this for mere ambition of passing for a great scholar. I myself have more than once argued with the Talmudic celebrities of our time, showing the need for abolishing the method of pilpul and hiluk without being able to convince them. This attitude can only be explained by the eagerness of those scholars for honors and Rosh Yeshba post. These empty squibbles have a particularly pernicious effect on our Bahus for the reason that the Bahu who does not shine in the discussion is looked down upon as incapable and is practically forced to lay aside his studies, though he might prove to be one of the best, if Bible, Mishnah, Talmud, and the codes were studied in a regular fashion. I myself have known capable young men who, not having distinguished themselves in pilpul, forfeited the respect of their fellow students and stopped studying altogether after their marriage. Secular studies were not included in the curriculum of the yeshivas. The religious codes composed during that period allowed the study of the other sciences only on occasion and only to those who have completely mastered Talmudic and rabbinic literature. Needless to say, no yeshiva student could lay claim to such mastery until the completion of the college course. Moreover, the secular sciences had to be excluded from the yeshiva for the external reason that the latter was generally located in a sacred place near the synagogue where the mere presence of a secular book was regarded as a profanation. Yet, it occasionally happened that young men strayed away from the path of the Talmud and secretly indulged in the study of secular sciences and of Aristotelian philosophy. This fact is attested by the great rabbinical authority of the 16th century, Rabbi Solomon Luria. I myself, he writes indignantly, have seen the prayer of Aristotle copied in the prayer books of the Bahurs. This somewhat veiled expression indicates, in all likelihood, that among the books of the yeshiva students, contraband was occasionally discovered in the shape of manuscripts of philosophic content. Unfortunately, we hear nothing more definite as to the way in which the Jewish youth of that period became infatuated with anathemized philosophy. We have reason to assume, however, that such deviations from the rigorous discipline of rabbinical scholarship were few and far between. The yeshbas, providing as they did 
on academic training were the nurseries of that intellectual aristocracy which subsequently became so powerful a factor in the life of polish lithuanian jewry this numerically considerable class of scholars looked down upon the uneducated multitude yet the level of literacy even among the latter was comparatively high all boys without exception attended the heder where they studied the hebrew language and the bible while many devoted themselves to the talmud a different attitude is observable towards female education girls remain outside the school their instruction not being considered obligatory according to the jewish law no headers for girls are mentioned in any of the documents of the time nor did a single woman attain to literary fame among the jews of poland and lithuania the girls were taught at home to read the prayers but they were seldom instructed in the hebrew language so that the majority of the women had but a very imperfect notion of the meaning of the prayers in the original in consequence the women began at that time to use the translations of the prayers in the jewish vernacular the so-called yiddish deutsch end of section seven